We find ourselves in 1 Peter chapter 4, if you turn there with me. We are in verse 12. Now let's begin reading. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trials when it comes upon you that test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share share in Christ's sufferings, that you might also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous are scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. If I may, let's read verse 19 again. Therefore, those who suffer according to God's will, if you will, and underline this word, entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. The title of my message this morning is Standing in Trust. And this is a very important subject to me because I think and I believe that it needs to be clarified today more than ever. We are not going to be able to stand in the storms of life, that is, those difficulties, those trials, those troubles that come upon us if we do not or will not trust God. Trust is a very sacred thing today. It is one of those areas of life that takes years to develop and seconds to lose. People are looking for whom they may trust. Our culture has unfortunately displayed for us that those in whom we should be able to trust and to count in often are the ones that let us down the greatest when it comes to that trust. Today, you have probably read in one place or another how individuals today are continuously seeking what they call the quote-unquote safe place to be. It's a term that is being used throughout our culture, throughout our society by many, many individuals. Often their idea of that safe place is a place where trust can be found. It is trust that they are seeking. For the believer in Jesus Christ, we need to be able to trust God. Unfortunately, we find that trust of God is at an all-time low today. And I believe that is due to the fact that today we have a very uh, misunderstood, distorted understanding of who God is. Secondly, we have many misconceptions when it comes 
to God that have been created through various false teachings that have permeated the culture of our Christian community. Both of these contribute greatly into the lack of trust that we are able to have in God. God revealed himself through his word that you may know him. And his revelation to you of himself is not contained just in one verse, one chapter, one book of the Bible. But he contains it within 66 books through the various number of chapters and through the various number of verses. The totality of the Bible allows us to know the characteristic and and understand who God is. But it also specifies in the manner in which we are able to trust Him. He tells us clearly that these are promises that He makes to us that we may adopt those promises, hold on to those promises, keep those promises, and therefore know that He will fulfill his promises towards us. But for example, if you have a distorted understanding of the character and the nature of God, if you have formulated and created your own promises concerning God, and therefore he doesn't fulfill those things, the first reaction that an individual will have is to distrust God. God let me down. God was not there for me and so forth. And yet, we are vilifying God and falsely accusing God of letting us down when we ourselves have a false construct of who God is. And Peter knew that those individuals, these precious Christians in whom he is writing to, that are under a weight of persecution simply for their faith in Jesus Christ, he knew that unless... They trusted God with the most precious possession that they have. You may say, what is that? Their souls. Why do you call it the most precious possession that we have? Jesus said, if we are to gain the whole world but to lose our soul, what does it profit us? And therefore, Peter realizes that unless we are going to trust God with our soul, with our being, with our, let me say it this way, life, we are not going to be able to weather the storms that come our way. And storms come our way. We are not exempt. God does not exempt his followers from the difficulties of this world, but allows us to experience these difficulties that we may be a light unto the world to demonstrate and to show the world that the God in whom we love, the God in whom we follow, the God in whom we serve is real. Because when the rubber hit the road and things got difficult, we did not shudder under the weight of the pressure of that suffering, but we stood firm in the grace of God to demonstrate to all around us that our God is real. And Peter knows that unless one is to trust God, they will not stand in the storms of life.
There are three words in the New Testament that we need to clarify before we go on any further. The words believe, the word faith, and the word trust. Each are used in our direct relationship with God. We are to believe in God. We are to have faith in God. We are to trust God. But our culture has assigned different meaning to these things and often stops short of the full fulfillment of what these words actually biblically mean. Today, there are many who will tell you that they believe in God. They will even go as far as to say that they believe in Jesus Christ. But nothing within their lives would seem to indicate that to be the truth. It is a academic ascent that they have uh, reached, that they believe in the person of Jesus, they believe in the character of Jesus, and they will admit so openly. However, though, their lives give you no indication of that reality. The way they conduct themselves. They have no heart for the people of God. They have no heart for the things of God, no desire for things as prayer and so forth. They have no love for God's people, but yet they openly claim that they believe in God. Uh, They will say, I believe in God, but conduct their lives in just the opposite manner in which God would prescribe. Now, Would you say that that type of belief is sufficient to indicate that one is truly saved in Jesus Christ? I wouldn't. For James wrote and told us that even the devils believe. But they are certainly not saved. They have a full understanding of who God is. They understand His oneness, His his unity in the Trinity. They understand the person of Jesus Christ. They know Him by name. But these demons are far from God. Belief in and of itself doesn't actually equate salvation. But then we have faith. So what is faith? Faith is the next step in the progression, bringing us closer to the realization of who Christ is and the salvation in which he provides. If you turn with me to Hebrews 11.1, 1, obviously we have this famous verse that most of you are fully aware of. As we come, the Hebrew writer tells us, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. And by hearing all those pages flipping, I will read it again. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for the conviction of things not seen. Faith allows me to embrace what I have not yet experienced as truth. It allows me to secure myself in something that has not yet fully been realized in the sense of materialized, but I can have full confidence of its assurance. I can be assured of these things. I can have faith in God. I know God will uh, allow me to enter the kingdom of heaven through Jesus Christ, even though that has not happened yet. I know that Jesus Christ is going to return to this earth, though that has not happened yet. I have faith in those things. So faith is the next step in the process. It allows me to embrace those things as true that I have not yet experienced for myself. But then, 
the writer of Proverbs tells us there is trust. And if you turn with me, you should be there already, Proverbs 3, 5 and 6, I'll read it to you. Trust in the Lord with all of your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. In this proverb, and I brought you to this proverb specifically because in the Hebrew language, we have what is called movement within it. The word lean there means that there's an action associated with the idea of trusting God. I trust God enough to act upon what I know to be true. I trust God enough that I'm going to sidestep my own understanding, my own personal uh, feelings, and I'm going to trust God in place of that. There is action within it. It means that I trust him enough that I'm going to act upon that trust in any particular moment at any particular time. This is when it comes full circle. And that's why in the Greek language, when we see the words that are used for belief and we see the word that is used for faith and we see the word that is used for trust in the New Testament, we find that there's very uh, great similarities between all three of those Greek words because they contain all three elements. I believe, I have faith, and I trust, and I act upon it. That's true biblical faith. Belief, trust. It is a belief that works itself out. It's a belief that states, I believe what I believe, not verbally, but through the actions in which we conduct ourselves. Meaning that one should be able to see your allegiance, your faith in Jesus Christ, your belief in Jesus Christ, not necessarily by what you say, but by what you do. And if we're going to trust Christ, in the moment of our suffering with the greatest possession in which we hold, that is our soul, then we will be able to weather the storm that we are in. And in that moment of trust, in that moment of trust, we will be able to withstand and to alleviate ourselves of worry, doubt, fear, anxiety, fretting, because we trust God. We trust God with our soul. And this is how Peter ends the majority of his letter written to those who are suffering. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. The only time that we find God here referred to in the New Testament in this way as a faithful creator, interesting term in which Peter uses, it shows you that he is trying to bring to mind uh, uh, of his readers to the totality of God. Uh, He wants them to remember from the time of creation till the time in which they are currently living, 64 AD. And he wants them to remember how faithful God has been to them. Time and time and time again, God fulfilling on those things in which he has promised. His faithfulness showed time and time again to even a a rebellious Israel 
in the Old Testament. Peter says, remember that God is trustworthy. That God has always been there as he said he would be there for you. And therefore, in the totality of his character, in the totality of his essence, in the totality of his nature and his actions, you can trust God. And that's really where I want to bring you this morning. To a place where you can fully trust God. And maybe you're one of those people I, you know, that struggle with trusting people. I understand that. I, I get that. Well, people have let me down so greatly. I understand that. Those who love me that were supposed to be there for me, they've let me down so greatly. I have a trouble with trust. I've been blown off so many times by people who said they cared about me. I have a problem with trust. I get all of that. And this fallen world is going to let you down. Fallen people are going to let you down. People who love you are going to let you down. But God will never let you down. The only way that God will let you down is if you have a false understanding of who he is and then assign a false promise or a false expectation to him that he has never made unto you. And this is why it's so important to have a right understanding of God and all that he has said to you. So therefore, you can know for sure that you can trust him. We begin in verse 12. As Peter writes to the beloved, these Christians who are dispersed around the region of Asia Minor, they are isolated and exiled from their home of Israel. They are Jewish individuals who now believe He writes to them in this endearing term, as he now moves to the end of his letter, he now says, now beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. He doesn't want them to feel that a trial in their life is something out of the ordinary, abnormal. He wants them to understand that trials are a part of the Christian life, specifically this fiery trial. He doesn't want them to be surprised by it coming upon them, to frighten them, to destabilize them, to throw them into panic and insecurity. I don't know about you, but I, I, don't, I personally do not watch horror movies. I, I don't get into them. The scariest horror movie that I can watch is maybe Frankenstein from the 1930s, okay? But one of the things I hate about horror movies and I hate about haunted houses is when things pop out at you. When I was 17 years old, I was a new Christian and I was asked to go to a haunted house in my hometown. I did not want to go, but I didn't want to stay home that night, so I went to this haunted house there in my hometown. And being a new Christian, of course, I was a work in progress. And though I believed in Christ and I was growing in Christ, there still was some old of me left around that needed to be dealt with. And as I was walking through the maze of this darkened, haunted house, just, you know, just waiting for something to happen, 
At a moment that I thoroughly did not expect, something popped out at me. I turned around and I hit him so hard in the face <laughs> that I don't, I, he had no clue. And all of a sudden, I saw this grotesque creature saying, ow, why did you do that? I hate when things jump out at me. I, I get all destabilized. When I know something scary is going to come on the TV, you know, turn off the sound and it's not nearly as scary anymore. But when things pop out at me, when things come upon me as a surprise, unless it is a surprise birthday party for me, don't do it. You have my permission to do this prize birthday party. I'm all for that. But when those things jump out at you, and you may know what that feels like. You know, you're driving home late at night, maybe from a Bible study on Wednesday night, and you're driving through the wooded areas around our church, and all of a sudden a deer pops out of nowhere, huh? You slam on the brakes, your heart starts pounding, you know, and you're just like, oh my goodness, I'm so glad I missed them. Surprise. That's exactly what Peter's writing about. When this trial comes upon you, when this fiery trial comes upon you, don't be surprised. Uh, don't, don't react as if this is something out of the ordinary or abnormal in your life. This fiery trial, which most likely he is referring to one specific incident, written in 64 AD, this was the time in which Nero began to persecute Christians to the point in which he arrested them there in Rome, brought them into his palace uh, courtyard, dipped them in oil and lit them on fire and rode his chariots around by the illumination of a burning Christian. Many believe that this is what the fiery trial is that Peter speaks about. But then he goes on to say that this fiery trial, when it comes upon you, to test you. There's a purpose to it. Difficulty, struggles, sufferings that we experience in life all have purpose to them in the hand of God. They are used as a surgeon uses a scalpel to continue to conform us into the image of Jesus Christ, taking away the old and bringing about the new. These sufferings can bring about a change in our life to test you, which is a metallurgy term, which is used for uh, gold. And when gold is purified, it is boiled, and then all the dross comes to the top of the, of the, uh, uh, of the, of the gold bullion, and then they just swipe it off, and then the gold is left pure. And that's the word for testing that he uses here to test you. He is using these things to purify you, to cause you to grow. And therefore, you should not see them as something strange that has come upon you. This world in which we live, if you see it as a world in which we are simply here to live for our creature comforts, you're going to be greatly dis uh, disappointed. The world in which we live in here and now is, in a, is a school classroom, if you will. It's a place of preparation, of training, and of teaching. It's a place in which God prepares us for eternity. It's a place in which God will use the circumstances of life, whatever they may be, for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose to conform them into the image of Jesus Christ. But if I simply live here, 
and I am simply driven by comfort, I am going to be greatly, greatly disappointed when that is unattainable and I simply cannot maintain it from time to time to time. It also discourages me when I search in this world for mere happiness, thinking that the things that I believe that will allow me to be happy will be there for me within this world. Again, within the pursuit of happiness, we're not promised the obtaining of happiness. And yet God says, Peter writes, that you shall be blessed, which is a word that is used for happiness for the believer. Knowing that there's something greater going on in this moment of trial, this moment of difficulty, this storm of life that's conforming me into the image of God and also preparing me for the glory in which is to come that which lies behind the veil of this world. We trust God within this first verse. Number one, because God tells us beforehand what is going to happen. He's honest with us. If we're going to trust anybody They have to be a person of honesty. It's very difficult to trust someone who's going to lie to you or deceive you in some way. It's very hard to trust someone who doesn't keep their word. But God is always honest with us. The Bible says he cannot lie. He will never deceive you. He'll never tell you one thing and then do another. God is always faithful in his word. And he will always be honest with you, even to the point of telling you not what you want to hear, but more importantly, what you need to hear. And secondly, in verse 13, we find that there is purpose in, I'm sorry, verse 12, in what God is doing. Trials are not random. They're not without meaning. They have a purpose. And God is using them in your life to bring about the changes in which he desires. And therefore, verse 13 Rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Christianity states that the follower of Christ will be no better than Christ himself. If the world hated him, they're going to hate us. If the world persecuted him, they're going to persecute you. If the world despises you, uh, him, they're going to despise us. If difficulties came upon him, suffering came upon him, we can be assured that suffering is going to come upon us, but we are to rejoice because it indicates that we are truly following Jesus Christ. And not only does it indicate that we are following Jesus Christ, It also indicates that we can be confident of what is going to happen when his glory is revealed at the time of his return. The return of Jesus Christ was something that every single one of the New Testament writers waited upon with bated breath. They desired the Lord's return in their time and they lived accordingly to that. But Jesus says that when he returns, he's wondering if he'll even find faith on this earth. The writers of the New Testament asks, or tell us that some will be ashamed at his coming. And Peter wrote at the beginning of his letter, he said these words in 1 Peter 6 and 7 of chapter 1, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, 
so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to the result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Number two, we can trust God in verse 13 because we can have confidence in him due to our suffering. If we are suffering for righteousness sakes, we can be confident in our relationship with Jesus Christ if we share in the sufferings in which he suffered. And he goes on in verse 14. If you are insulted, that is harshly criticized for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Harshly criticized for the name of Christ. Christian, the term Christian in that culture at that time was a derogatory term that was used for the followers of Jesus Christ. The first term in which Christians were identified by was the term the way. But as they became less popular and more persecuted, the derogatory term became Christian. And therefore, Peter says, if you are insulted with this name Christian, you are blessed because you are following Christ as he would have you follow him. You are blessed because the spirit of glory that raised Christ from the dead, that is the Holy Spirit, has come upon you and rested upon you. In the Old Testament, when the Shekinah glory uh, appeared and then rested upon the temple there in Jerusalem, it indicated to those who were there in Jerusalem and to all the Jewish people that God was present with them. And in this phrase, you are blessed because of this spirit resting upon you. He is saying that God is with you. I can trust God because God is with me through the difficulties in which I experience. That he'll never leave me nor forsake me at any time here on this earth. God will never leave his kids I mean, look at how diligently parents stay close to their kids today. I mean, I, I can't go to the mall without seeing a kid on a leash today. And the other day, I actually saw one of those with the extended leashes. I wonder if the person bought the wrong thing at the store. You know, that's for your dog, not for your kid. And when the kid ran away, you heard it go, zzzz. I was just like, oh, hit the button, you know, the retrieve button. <laughs> If we are so conscientious about our children, how much more is God conscientious about you? He'll never leave you, never forsake you. I'll never forget, you know, I believe being a parent was one of the greatest blessings that I could have ever experienced here on this earth. And there were times that I was just so, uh, you know, uh, so joyful because of being a parent. And there was also times that I was grieving because I was being a, well, because I'm being a parent. I'll never forget when Autumn got very sick early on. We were in the hospital and she as a, a toddler didn't know what was going on. She just knew that all these people were around her. She felt lousy. Uh, she, um, she didn't know why people were 
stabbing her with little needles and, and, and examining her and all these bright lights and so on and so forth were taking place. And she was crying and she only knew a few words at that time. And, and she was just very, very, very upset. And as I was sitting in the hallway waiting for the doctors to do the examination, I heard her calling out, Daddy, Daddy, Daddy. I, I can't tell you how I felt. And when I was able to go in there and hold her hand and that little hand just gripped my fingers. And then all of a sudden she settled and she got calm again, just knowing that I was there with her. I think about that when it comes to my God. How many times do we get in places of pain and suffering and we're just going to cry out to God, Dad, help me. And if we trust him, it's at that moment that I believe that we feel his hand grip ours and give us that confidence that we had not had before. So we are blessed with the presence of God in verse 15, but let none of you suffer as a murderer, thief, or an evildoer, or one who is as a meddler. These were all sins of retaliation that Peter gave to us and says, listen, if you choose to retaliate, you will find yourself suffering needfully because of your actions rather than for the righteousness of Christ. If one suffers because they're a jerk or if one suffers because they're a criminal, they suffer rightly due to the fact of their own actions. But one who has done nothing except that of glorifying their God through their life and being persecuted for righteousness sake, these words have been given to you by Jesus himself. He says, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for, you, for your reward is great in heaven for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Let us understand that the confidence that we have is the confidence of knowing that we are suffering not for our sake or the things that we have done, but for Christ's sake and for his glory. Verse 16. He says, yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, here is that term, let him not be ashamed when they level this derogatory term towards you, calling you a Christian. And today that is all too uh, familiar to us especially in the world of academia, where Christians are being excluded from any kind of pursuits of science and math and so forth. Where Christians are being excluded in politics or being a CEO of a large corporation simply because they do not agree with the moral standards of our society. When they defame you in such a way, when one suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed at that moment, but let him glorify God in that name. Stand strong at that moment. A CEO who is criticized for his faith in Jesus Christ and then walks away from the money so he may not compromise his Christian values. I think of the model who was uh, well known as a Victoria's Secret model who, when she became a believer in Jesus Christ, could no longer have individuals looking at her in that way and said that my body is for my husband and him alone 
after coming to Christ, and she walked away from millions of dollars. Don't be ashamed. Do it for the glory of God. And do you not think that her reward in heaven is going to be greater than those millions of dollars here on this earth? In fact, when her testimony came across, I had my daughter read it because it was so powerful. She walked away with, from everything that a young girl is supposed to look for and achieve here in the world today. She had the looks, she had the figure, she had everything. Now she was being rewarded for it and she had one of the most prestigious modeling jobs in all of the world and she walked away from it all for the glory of Jesus Christ. And she never looked back. For in verse 17, for it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And then he quotes the Proverbs when he states, and if the righteous are scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? We need to understand that God is going to deal with us first before he deals with the world. Throughout the Old Testament, God always promised his people that he would not go on and judge the world until he first dealt with his people, and that being at the time the people of Israel. Ezekiel tells us that very clearly. But here today and now, we are those who represent God to the world. And God's going to start here. He's going to start working through these judgments to purify his church. Now, judgment today, often from the time of the Reformation, the medieval times until now, only carries with it the connotations of punishment. Uh, and this is very one-sided to the true understanding of what I call biblical judgment. From the time of the Reformation until now, understanding the sovereignty of God as they had, understanding the wrath of God that they had, they used the term judgment always as a punitive measure in which to bring about conformity in an individual. But judgment in the Bible is so much more than that. Judgment of the Bible is not only punitive, but it restores that which, being, which is being judged. In the book of Revelation, you see the judgment of God upon the world, not for the purpose of simply judging the people on the earth, but to, but to begin the restoration and the reconciliation of all creation back to God. And so when he says that he's going to start here in the church and begin to judge with his own people. He is saying, I'm purifying it, and it is the part of the process of restoration. You know as well as I do, if you've done any home improvements, if you've done any home improvements, you may have approached that home improvement in the manner of, well, I'm simply going to cosmetically fix it up. Uh, you know, my bathroom's falling apart, but I'm going to go down to the hardware store and I'm going to get a new wall plate for my outlet. Now that's going to make everything better, right? Well, the outlet looks good, but the rest of the bathroom is still looks pretty lousy. 
I have done that so often where I just cosmetic, hey, you know, honey, we need a new bathroom. Let's get a new towel holder. Until finally, I realize that the only way this is truly going to get rectified is if I tear it all out, demolish everything, and rebuild it from scratch, right? How many have done a tear out? How many will never do a tear out again? Yeah. I've done it, been there, will never do it again. I will sell the house before doing that again. That being said, think about that process in your mind. You stand before a leaky, dingy old bathroom. You can't just spruce it up. That's not going to solve anything. You need to tear it all out. But is tearing it out your end game? Is that the end goal in the process? Have you ever just torn it out? Now you just got floorboards. You got a little bit, you know, you got the, uh, uh, the studs there in the wall and so forth. Then you have your neighbors over. Hey, redid my bathroom. Check it out. Hey, you don't got a toilet. No, we got a hole in the bottom, though. Uh, that, that looked pretty good. Uh, uh, we don't have, but you don't have a sink. Well, you know, water's overrated. Washing your hands. How many times a day can you do that? No, that's not the end game. The end game is the new bathroom that you're going to instill. Take one out, put one in. That's judgment in the Bible. Taking one out, putting the new one in. In fact, if you read Revelation, he takes it out. Why? And then he creates new heavens, new earth, etc. So this judgment begins there in the household of God. And he begins with us. And through suffering brings about the changes in which we can anticipate that will allow us to glorify him for all eternity. And in quoting this, he states this, if we who are scarcely saved in the sense that we in our in ourselves cannot do anything for our own salvation, we rely completely on Jesus Christ, and we're saved through such sufferings, the ungodly and the sinners who stand before God apart from Christ, of course, they have no hope whatsoever. And therefore, it brings us to this last verse. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. And the last point I want to give you to allow you to trust God is this emphasis that those who suffer suffer randomly without God knowing. Is that what your translation says? It says, according to God's will. God allows what he allows, as he did in the life of Job, to bring about the changes in our lives, to conform us into the image of Jesus Christ. And God is in control of all things. The suffering that I experience in whatever form that, it, that I face, he is allowing it to occur that I may grow within it and become the person that he desires me to become. And therefore, since I know that he is in control of it and that he is with me and that he'll never leave me or forsake me and that we are blessed with his presence, I can trust him further at that moment. Because when one suffers and one becomes afraid and they move from that place of security and stability to a place of insecurity and, and instability, instability, then we become vulnerable. We become vulnerable to the whispers of the enemy who would tell us to doubt 
the very nature and character of God at that moment. We we become vulnerable when the voices of our society say, how can you tell me that you serve and follow a loving God when such suffering is is apparent, not only in the world, but now in your own personal life? It is a difficult journey through suffering. And the only thing that will allow us to stand at that moment is if we have complete confidence and trust in God. God. 